I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Not every scientist has the luxury of working with a subject that they like. Gabby Brand is a scientist with the University of New Hampshire, and that was the sound of her detaching a green crab that had vice pincered itself onto the flesh between her thumb and pointer finger. See, they're mean. Yeah, um, defensive stance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, oh, very intimidating. Yeah, and the females are actually meaner, I feel. Up here in the Northeast, green crabs are absolutely everywhere. They look just like your standard beachy, tide pooly crab, but they're green. They're from Europe, but have been on the East Coast of the United States for 200 years. They've invaded Australia, South Africa, the West Coast of the U.S., and South America. In other words, they're now on five of the seven continents. They find a nice niche, they outcompete everything else, they ruin everything they see, they're mean, and they take over. Up in Maine, they completely decimated the softshell clam uh, population up there and caused like millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of loss in income. Yeah, they just sound like they're the worst. They are. They're the worst. Ever. However, as you and I and anybody who likes seafood is aware, crabs are delicious. No other species can defeat them. They're invasive. So why don't we just freaking eat them? Because we're hungry. Eat the invaders. This is Outside In, and today is our occasional segment about eating invasive pest species. Gabby's quest to eat green crabs began several years ago when a friend of hers from Louisiana pointed out, hey, y'all have a crab problem? Why not eat them into submission? Have you ever tried a softshell crab? So that started me on that project of, huh, let's try and figure this out. Softshells, by the way, are in fact just regular crabs. But crabs have an exoskeleton which they have to shed as they grow. It's called molting. And for a few days after they molt, their whole body is soft and you can eat the whole dang thing. 
So here's a quick explanation of why we eat the crabs that we do at the local Jack Black Crab and Tackle Shack. Can you just introduce yourself? Yeah. I'm uh, Brendan Vesey at Joinery Restaurant in Newmarket. As a fisher, you don't go out trying to catch crabs that have just molted in the day or so before their shells harden back up again. You catch them when they're not soft and then watch for signs that they're about to molt. But a soft crab, this would be a perfect little starter. When it's a blue crab, the American crab that most of our soft shells are, as the crab grows, the plates in its shell start to spread apart and show a dark outline around the edge of each one. It's really obvious, and fishers call them busters, as in they're about to bust out of their shell. So let me just lay them right in the skillet. Once you find a buster, you separate it out into its own cage, jokingly called a crab condo, so that when it molts, the other crabs don't tear it to pieces. And then you check it every day, because as soon as it molts, you've got to get that sucker to a restaurant or a market while it's still soft. Yeah, we're just going to get some of the extra grease off. This taste test at the joinery was actually about a year ago with former producer Logan Shannon. It's really good. Yeah. It's weird because it's like I'm putting a crab in my mouth, but then the time it gets in your mouth is so soft that it sort of like just dissolves. It's, I mean, it's seafoody. I think they have an intensely crabby flavor, which is why we like making the stock for the soup, because I think it tastes stronger than other crab flavor. I would eat a lot of these. <laughs> they are delicious, and people will pay top dollar for them. But the whole process of getting a soft-shell crab is premised on being able to identify the crabs that are about to molt. And Gabby Brant realized that nobody had any idea what to look for in these green crabs. So she caught a bunch of them and sent them to her friend's lab down in Louisiana to be monitored. They were looking for morphological changes, physical changes that one was about to molt. And my colleague down there had it in her tank for, I don't know, four or five months. And she got one to molt. (laughs) So... There goes year one. Year two, they decided to keep the crabs in their own tanks and take constant pictures of them every day so that they could study the molting process. They started by trying to trap 50 males and 50 females. This plan immediately met headwinds because they couldn't find any male crabs. Because it was the wrong season. (laughs) We only found females. So we're like, well, that's weird. And And then we took many, many, many pictures and we got one molt again. Turns out, the females really only molt in the late summer. So, another year gone. Year three. Trapped a bunch of females, this time in the right time of year. And we got 80% of all of our females to molt because we were in the correct time, correct temperature. Awesome. Took pictures. We have a timeline when we caught them to the day they molted. And we went back and looked for morphological characteristics and, oh, nothing. I've joked that this Eat the Invaders segment rarely offers good solutions to the problems of invasive species. But green crabs are very easy to catch. They come up in traps by the hundreds sometimes. So I can imagine a world where there are enough overlapping markets, crab as bait, crab eggs, crab mulch, crab compost, to support enough of a green crab fishery to knock the population back. But to really get fishers interested, to really get them hauling up crabs in huge quantities off the seafloor where they're causing so much trouble, it would be nice to have a high-end market. 
Something like soft-shell crabs, which can sell for $20, $30, $40 a pound. Compare that to lobster, which floats between $6 and $12 a pound. But Gabby had tried to use the scientific method to come up with clues about the molting process, and no dice. So what to do? To figure it out, the scientists leave the scientific method behind after a quick break. Remember, American scientists are trying to figure out how to spot when green crabs are about to molt. And they aren't having any luck. That is, until... An acquaintance of mine came to me, um, and so that's sort of what sparked it all. This is Marissa McMahon, a scientist from Maine that works with a nonprofit called the Manomet Center. Um, I grew up here. My family are all fishermen from this area, and so I've really been immersed in fisheries, commercial fisheries, my whole life. She was studying and working on fisheries science in college, but hadn't ever been much interested in the green crab problem, even though she saw the impacts of it all the time. They're a species that is incredibly well adapted to so many different environments. Um, They can withstand high temperatures, low temperatures. They can actually, there's a study that just came out from some researchers on the west coast that actually found that they can absorb nutrients through their gills so they don't even have to eat. I mean they can go extended periods of time without eating and be fine. It's just, it's wild. So, and they're aggressive and they're a voracious predator. Marissa had this acquaintance, a guy who happened to be a fine arts conservator who spent a lot of time in Venice, like Venice, Italy. And he was in Venice and he was eating deep fried soft shell green crabs. And so he came to me and said, why aren't we doing this here? What's the Italian name for soft shell crabs? Oh, it's molecche. 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 This Hi everyone. I'm Paolo. Is Paolo Tagliapietra. I'm from Venice. I'm a fisherman. I talked to him on WhatsApp. It's a little bit boggling to think about this. But green crabs invaded America in 1817. So it was 199 years from that date before Western scientists first became aware of the fact that the invasive scourge of our estuaries is also a straight-up Venetian delicacy. It's a fishery that represent uh, the lagoon of Venice, you know. Right, so it's like when you come to Venice, that's a thing you have to do. The, the, most, uh, the most specific, there's nothing more Venetian. Marissa's friend got her in touch with Paolo, and she went to visit his family. She and another lobsterman from Maine spent about a week in Venice last year. They had a guest house um, that was right next to their house. It was like a fishing exchange student program. Paolo's mother cooked for us every day. It was just astounding. Um, I've never eaten so much food in my life. Every day they would wake up early. We'd start the day out. We'd go out with Paolo and his boat, just like an open skiff. Out on the Venetian lagoon, hauling in nets. We would probably do that for three or four hours, and we would end up with about 800 pounds of green crabs. There is something about the sound of a giant crate full of crabs, big, glistening, pincery ocean bugs crawling all over each other that I find really unsettling. (laughs) Once they get them onto the dock, the sorting begins. 
Well, actually. We'd actually break for lunch and we'd have like a two and a half hour long lunch. <laughs> and then we would Because go, Italy. <laughs> because yes, yeah. And you know, at lunch of course everyone's like drinking prosecco and um that was different for me. I was like, Oh, it's nap time, it's not time to go back to work. <laughs> okay, now the sorting begins. I just point out it's kind of funny how you use the crab's leg to point. Well, it's, it's, like, a, it's a natural pointer. <laughs> it almost feels like the crab's like betraying itself. This is where science has not caught up to tradition. Gabby Brandt, the careful scientist from the start of the story, caught 50 crabs, took many high-definition photos of them, 80% molted, but she couldn't detect any sign that distinguished the ones that were about to molt from the others. I don't think I'm any good at this. And generally speaking, <laughs> that's what happens to people who are new to sorting crabs. Is what happened to Marissa over in Italy. We would we would stand around the sorting table with them, and we would pick crabs out and show them to them, you know, and they would just shake their head no. Even after Paolo and his father had explained what to look for, the incredibly slight dark rings around the belly scales of the crabs that are about to molt, the puffy rear end that signaled water was getting inside the crab's shell as the plates spread and split, the sluggish behavior as the crab gets weak before it sheds its carapace. And it was just again and again and again. No, no, no. After a week of doing this, after seeing tens of thousands of pounds of crabs, after an internship with the masters of spotting crabs about to molt. Then that it happened that she showed me the crabs and I said yes. Another one, yes. But after she, she gave me a completely wrong... Uh, <laughs> So I realized that she hasn't understood. Meanwhile, Marissa says that Paolo, who learned from his father, and Paolo's father, who learned from his grandfather... They're doing it like supersonic speed compared to us. So they'll dump, you know, 100 pounds at a time on the sorting table, and they, they don't even need to look at the crabs. I mean... Most of them, they're just pushing, 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 and discarding. And once in a while, they'll look at a crab from the back of it. They won't even turn it over, which is, I mean, we're looking at the underside of the crab to figure out the premolds. They'll just look at the, the, the top carapace side of the crab and pull it, and they'll know. Wait, how do they know? They're just that good. And I mean, that's what they told us, you know. It's the easiest to learn looking at the underside of the crab. Those are the easiest signs to learn. But if you get really good at that, you start seeing other signs. You start to see that there's other things about the crab that are changing. And so they're so good that they don't really even, they don't even need to really look at the crab. They just see it in the pile of other crabs, and it's different to them somehow, and they just pull it out and throw it aside. It's like wizardry. It is. It's crazy. You might have thought that you were signing on for a story about delicious soft-shell crab pole boys, but the truth is that this is a story about the limits of science. And, and let me just say right here, I'm a big fan of the scientific method. I love to read about experimental design, about what the results of a study can and can't tell us, about what areas need more study, but science has some big blind spots. For instance, the fact that scientists mostly hang out with other scientists and not, say, Mediterranean fishers. 
Green crabs have been in North America. They invaded in 1817. They've been here for more than 200 years. And scientists have been studying them for, you know, well over 100 years. But no one ever knew about this pre-malt indicator until we started connecting with these Venetian fishermen. Well, no American scientists knew. It's hard to generalize, but it's almost like Western science is not quite ready. Like, like the fact that it took us from 1817 until 2018 to be like, oh, maybe we should ask these people who've been working oh, with yes. them for like hundreds of years. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting, too, because even there was even disagreement amongst Paolo and his father and his brother-in-law. So, like, even amongst them, they're sometimes looking for different things. So I think, yeah, there's definitely a part of it that is... Um, just so it's sort of like a gut feeling almost and like we don't we can't rely on that in science right so I think that's part of the reason why you know there hasn't really been any major scientific breakthroughs on that front. Centuries old, traditional ways of doing things are often results of generations of experimentation. How did the first Venetian crabbers figure out which green crabs were about to molt? I can only speculate, but I can tell you it wasn't through high-resolution cameras and computer analysis. They must have had to catch a lot of crabs, hold on to a lot of them, watch carefully every day, turning them over and over in their hands, fishing season after fishing season. Hundreds of fishers, without phones or television to distract them, spending years on the water observing hundreds of thousands of crabs. Then they showed their children, who showed their children. How could a couple people in a lab compete with centuries of data like that? One can take this idea too far. I'm not one who's going to argue that the old ways are always better. But I think it's pretty fair to say, and I think science has begun to recognize, that there are vast stores of discoveries that we could tap into if science started to take a closer look at traditions and ancient skills. Paolo has created an 11-page guide to crab molting. But even he says you really can't learn except by sorting crabs side by side with an expert. So for this to work in Maine... Somehow, this particular skill will have to make its way across the Atlantic. And if it does, it just might launch a new industry. This is the lobster man who went to visit Venice with Marissa and Paolo. You went to Venice? Oh, yeah. yeah. How was that? It was amazing. It was different. <laughs> but it was, it was a great trip. Learned a lot. Um, and now I'm doing it here. When we stood around the sorting table in Maine... Chris had a little bit of that Italian wizardry that Marissa described. Uh, let's see, it's like a like the dark, ring around the, sh- uh, the scale. The very, the very end of it. Yeah. Um, all the way up through, and they're starting to fade. He really doesn't have a lot of strength in his arm and his claws. Um, he's, he's slowing down. This spring yeah. is the first time he's tried to sell the crabs. The day I met him, Chris said he had about 30 back at his place that he had successfully identified as pre-molt and that had, in fact, shed their shell once he separated them into their little crab condos. It's a lot to it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But those are just kind of some of the... After, it's, it's like you have to see like 600 crabs before you can start to tell? Right. A lot. A lot more than that. A lot more than I mean, it's probably been like 20,000 pounds, it seems like, to really start to really focus in on what, what's good and what's not. Chris took his soft shells to a high-end restaurant later that day, and he texted me after meeting with the chef. He told me the crabs sold for $30 a pound. 
and they told him to bring back more as soon as he had them. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Logan Shannon, with help from Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Nick Capadice, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Excellent Nature Puns. Special thanks to Luke Poirier, Dwight Souther, Jonathan Taggart, and the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. You can find photos of green crabs, ones that are about to molt, ones that aren't about to molt, even though none of us can tell the difference, at our website, outsideinradio.org. Music in this episode is by Ari De Niro, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 